What's up, founders, and welcome back to the In Demand podcast, where we talk all about how to reach your very first 1 million in ARR. I'm your host, Asia Arangio, and I'm the founder of Demand Maven, where we work with early stage SaaS companies on reaching their very first growth milestones. Let's do this. All right, everyone, welcome back. Today's topic is going to be a little bit of a prickly one. What I mean by that is it's going to be one of those topics where it's either going to vibe with you and serve you in some kind of higher, greater way, or it's going to be one of those episodes that you just skip because it's not in alignment with you. And I invite anyone listening just to make space for that. And to after, of course, listening to this episode, if you decide "Eh, maybe that's not for me, that's totally cool. What we're going to talk about today has to do with what ultimately makes a high-performing CEO. What does a good CEO ultimately look like and what is it are they doing? I know from a SaaS and software perspective, there are certain resources that I kind of feel like are like the redheaded stepchildren (laughs) in a way. Uh, They are resources that a lot of people don't really consider applies to them because it is in such a different environment or it's in such a different industry that they kind of feel like, oh, well, it's from HBR, you know, what could they possibly have to teach me? But I actually think it it is even more so important and critical to uh, how any kind of leader really develops is, is to really be exposed to many different types of education, knowledge. There's so many different things that you can leverage and apply. So much wisdom. And in this particular HBR article, it's by several authors. Uh, I think there's like literally five authors that that co-wrote or co-produced this piece of content. But it's all about what sets successful CEOs apart. And it's actually exactly this that I want to unpack. So there's really four things that this article covers. The first is deciding with speed and conviction. The second is engaging for impact. The third is adapting proactively. And then the fourth is delivering reliably. And within each of these sections, there's two that are the most expanded upon. And actually the the one that we're going to spend the most amount of time on is going to be all about deciding and decision making. But there's a few resources that I have for you. In addition to just a few very quick personal anecdotes both from observations, but then also uh, from from even myself in my own business. We're going to start with the very first thing, which is deciding with speed and conviction. Decision-making in general is one of those skill sets that I think most of my career, I don't know if I ever really thought about how well or how quickly I was able to make decisions. It actually wasn't until running Demand Maven that I realized that as we grew and as different opportunities came our way, in addition to, uh, you know, lessons learned, failures even, as I uh, encountered some of these things in my own personal life and in my own business, I, I realized that I was becoming more and more conservative and hedgy whenever it came to making decisions. It was almost like the more that I learned and grew and accomplished, achieved, but then also uh, didn't accomplish or achieve, the more I felt like I needed to protect this 
ability to make decisions while also wanting to make sure I was protecting, you know, and, and salvaging and making sure I minimized loss, as opposed to, say, maybe looking at the opportunity, as opposed to maybe, say, thinking a lot more abundantly. Uh, and decision making over time became much harder for me. And it's something that I have observed. And I'm finally like, okay, this has to get better. Like I have to be able to make decisions quickly and also feel like I can trust the decision that I'm making. And this goes beyond just the typical pros and cons list. I think that's a very common practice for us as leaders and CEOs to kind of start with, you know, oh, well, what are the pros and cons of making this decision? You know, what what happens if it, it does happen and what happens if it doesn't happen? And then what are the pros and cons of each? And hopefully we can evaluate uh, based off of that. What this article covers, however, is that decision-making, it, it really applies to many different aspects of the CEO's job. And what it really iterates, or reiterates, I should say, is the CEO has to be able to make good decisions. They don't have to be perfect decisions, but they do have to be fast. Uh, The other thing is CEOs need to be able to make decisions without complete information, which I think is one, extremely interesting, but then also uh, absolutely terrifying for someone who maybe feels like they absolutely need perfect information or they need all 100% of the information. But the reality is that you almost never have 100% of the information, even if you think that you do. Part of that is just because there's infinity paths. There's infinity outcomes that certain things can take. And there's no real way to predict literally everything and how everything will go. So in theory, technically, you're always operating without 100% information. But there is this need to, there's this uh, drive to feel like you need perfect information. And I actually think this blocks a lot of not only our decision making, but it actually blocks us from taking action, period. This idea that there's a silver bullet, that perfectionism is rewarded somehow. These are all things that uh, are huge limiting beliefs in the psychology of being a CEO, running a business. What I think is so interesting, though, is that the article really focuses on uh, CEOs being able to make decisions earlier and faster and with conviction. And if you are someone who absolutely loves intellectualism or intellectual thought and complexity, then you're actually more likely to uh, feel like you need perfect information and therefore slow down making decisions. But we've actually... Uh, We've seen time and time again that perfectionism and silver bullet thinking, these are things that actually hinder progress as opposed to uh, supports it. And uh, one thing that this article talks about is you're actually more likely to make more progress, even if you make uh, wrong decisions uh, or if you make mistakes in the process, because wrong decisions or um, uh, bad decisions are still better than no decision at all, which I think is fascinating. One of the top reasons why startups and SaaS companies fail, of course, it's going to be in the product market fit area. There's no real need or demand for what the product or the pain is ultimately solving uh, and you know, can't find enough buyers. But one, one of the things on that list, which you can go and research you know, top reasons why SaaS companies and startups fail, and you're going to see the same like 10 or so things every time. And one of the things on the list is actually not executing enough, not executing fast enough. 
Uh, yes, there is certainly room and space. And, you know, what I really encourage is strategic thinking. But then there's also the space of just simply not moving fast enough, not executing enough, and not uh, deciding quickly, and then therefore charging ahead and with conviction, which I think is really interesting. It's very, very fascinating to me, but it also makes a lot of sense. I have seen several scenarios where CEOs, leadership founders weren't necessarily uh, deciding fast enough and were hesitant about not, uh, about, um, you know, not making a decision with perfect information or really what I should say is they were hesitant about making a decision without perfect information, which of course doesn't exist in pretty much any realm. It makes sense, of course, to to take more time and to hedge and to minimize and mitigate risk as much as possible when you have much to lose. So in, let's say in the case of running a 50 million or a hundred million dollar company or even more, you know, you get into the very large organizations where it takes longer to make decisions because, you know, there's technically more to lose. But in the early stage uh, SaaS company, or even potentially, uh, give or take on the bootstrap side, um, it's possible that on the bootstrap side, maybe you take a little bit longer to make decisions because, you know, if you're bootstrapped, then the assumption is that it's coming out of your pocket, right? But on the earlier stage side, um, something that I say often to founders and to my clients is the only wrong decision is the one that puts you out of business at the end of the day or slows you down dramatically. And it's actually really rare to find extremely excruciatingly wrong decisions. It's actually very, very rare. As long as you learn from mistakes and as long as you course correct, you're always going to be fine. But, you know, this goes back to the decision-making process. So this is what I have seen at least in clients. Uh, So I completely agree with this, you know, being able to make decisions very quickly. Uh, There was a company that I worked with once where it uh, it was really difficult for uh, it was a co-founder scenario. It was really difficult for the co-founders to make decisions. Uh, anytime a challenge or a problem or something arose, an issue, and it needed to be addressed, they would go weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks debating and arguing, going back and forth with no real objectivity and no real process or framework for not only how do we decide, but also how do we then move forward and move on <laughs> without you know, opening back up the, you know, the old file, the old folder and, you know, rehashing everything all over again. Uh, And it was one of those situations where when it comes to putting your CEO hat, which we're going to talk about this in a second, but when, when it comes to putting on your CEO hat, you need to be able to make decisions without perfect information. But what's also really important about decision making is you have to do it with conviction and even if it ends up being a mistake or it is wrong in the end, you learn that you course correct while also carrying everyone else with you on board. So it's not enough to just decide, but you also have to make sure that uh, if people aren't on board, uh, they at least respect the fact that you are heading in a particular direction. People don't have to necessarily like it, uh, but ideally they are still actively engaging in some kind of way. The two questions that this, ar- that this article gives you, which I thought was really interesting, um, the two questions to ask yourself when it comes to making a decision. 
what is the impact if I get it wrong? So if the outcome is negative or is a mistake or is bad in some kind of way, what do you, what, what do you ultimately have to lose? What is the impact of it? Where does it impact everything? And then the second question is, how much will it hold up other things if I don't move forward on this? And I love both of these questions because I think they're really great questions anytime that you are stuck on making a decision and you might even be avoiding making a decision. Uh, Avoidant behavior is one of the most common (laughs) setbacks and pitfalls when it comes to uh, founders becoming CEOs and really uh, becoming someone who who is seen as a decision maker. Uh, But avoidant behavior is also something too. And I know it's a, I have fallen prey to this myself where I don't want to make the decision. I don't feel like it. I don't feel good about it for various reasons. Could be really anything. And also, you know, I just don't want to think about that right now. I want to think about whatever it is that I'm actually working on. So I just think it's so interesting. Um, these these two questions, I think that they're very powerful, um, especially when we think about uh, the not only the outcome, the fallout, but the potential fallout, I should say, but also what happens if uh, it's, what, what happens if, um, if we don't act and what other things are now impending because we're not deciding, we're not moving fast enough. So those are your two questions to ask. Uh, something else that this article mentions is it's also really important for CEOs to know when decisions shouldn't be there's ultimately to answer. And this also makes a lot of sense too when the CEO does not have expertise in specific areas while also keeping in mind that there are just some decisions that the CEO should not really be making. Not because they're not capable, but because if they have a team of people to support them in their work and assuming that they are experienced enough, it also might make sense for the CEO to pass certain decisions along Um, to others, to other stakeholders, to other people responsible in particular roles, just from an energy perspective of the CEO does not have infinite energy and they probably shouldn't be making decisions on literally everything. Uh, This is actually something that I have personally been transforming internally at my, at my own company. So I can, I can speak to this uh, very intimately. There's some decisions that when, by the time that it comes to me, For the most part, I have trusted my team to actually think about this and to actually spend energy thinking about this before it comes to me, especially if it's in a realm that they have ultimate control over, if it's in their domain. Now, I am always a resource when it comes to, hey, I'm stuck on this. What do you think? Or help me think through this. But usually my job in those scenarios are not for me to provide the answer as much as me to to guide, to coach, to ask thought-provoking enough questions to kind of get them to arrive at an answer, even if I don't have it myself. But uh, sometimes questions will come to me or decisions will come to me to make, uh, and they actually truly are in my realm. And other times I've gotten those decisions and I have had to push back and say, uh, actually, what do you think about this? And one of my favorite examples of this is, um, so at Demand Maven, we have our strategy projects where we're coming in, we're troubleshooting growth, we're helping a company go to market or or redefine their go-to-market strategy. 
Um, there's also, you know, we, we don't know our, who our customers are. Can you help us understand who our customers are and how we can leverage that insight to identify other growth opportunities? Um, then, of course, there's the acquisition question, the marketing question. I mean, there's all kinds of different areas that we play in on the strategy side. But we also have retainers. And retainers for a long time have needed to undergo a certain kind of surgery. They've needed rein reinvention and reinnovation for a while because we are primarily a consultancy. We do have a agency part of the business, but the agency part of the business wasn't really getting the love and attention that it really needed, mostly because um, we just hadn't really set up the strategy side of the business yet. And now that we have, and that's a pretty well-oiled machine, we know exactly how that's gonna go for the most part. Now it's all about, okay, well, how do we make retainers as effective as possible that clients see the most value while also staying true to who we are as a team and also as a provider? And I, uh, you know, for the longest time, I was kind of building in a silo by myself where I would make these decisions about agency retainers, um, about these retainers that we offered to clients. And over time, I kind of realized that um, we were running into the same problem. We were running into this problem where I would uh, basically sell a retainer that only literally I on the team could deliver, which is a problem because as you know, if I think of myself as CEO, I'm not necessarily the best person to execute. There's going, and there really shouldn't just be me executing against projects and things. Ideally we build out a team and they ultimately own the execution side, but you know, I am obviously there as uh, we call it SaaS marketing ghost internally. <laughs> Um, I'm kind of there as like a SaaS marketing ghost. Like I'm there when you summon me, but for the most part, I'm hands off and I'm making sure that there's quality control. There might be divine intervention where, you know, poof, I'm there and then and then I'm then I'm out again. And that's really the idea, right? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm CEO, not necessarily chief strategy officer for um, each and every single one of these projects. And I'm teaching other people to be chief strategy officer. But it's just really interesting because I, for the longest time, I was making decisions on my own about this and then ending up with the same exact result of, oh my gosh, this is another retainer that we've sold where literally only I can do it. So then I finally just decided I'm making these decisions in a silo and I shouldn't be. What if I actually passed this decision to someone else? And so I actually did. I got the team together and I was like, listen, retainers are broken. How do we fix them? And they ultimately decided for me. And it was amazing. It was awesome. We ended up walking away with a far better understanding of what was required from a retainer perspective. On top of that, we also came away with an understanding of, oh, you know, retainers need to look and feel like this instead. And this is how we're going to structure them. And this is who we need to hire. And it was so cool for me to not have to do that by myself. <laughs> it was amazing. It was like, oh my gosh, why haven't I done this before? So um, now this is a new, now whenever decisions like that come up and I just get the sense that maybe I shouldn't be making it on my own, I pass it down. I pass it down to someone else on the team. And then if I, if it really clearly is up to me uh, and no one can make that decision, then I make sure to take my time as quickly as possible <laughs> and ultimately walk away with conviction. And if I, if we, if we find that it's kind of a mistake or it's not going the way that we think, we can course correct. But it's important that I don't waffle on the decision without getting actual real clear data on it. Um, but anyway, that's decision making. So the next uh, number two is engaging for impact, which 
this section actually was pretty interesting to me because when you when you first hear it, you're kind of like, okay, like what does that actually mean? Engaging for what? For impact? Okay, but what does engaging mean? And the ultimate energy of this entire section is really all about how do you drive performance, align the right people, resources, tools, etc. And how do you ultimately plan and create paths to execute? Like that's really what engaging for impact means. In a larger organization, like in a large corporation, for example, the example or the story that it tells, this article tells is really all about, um, you know, like how do you make sure that your board is on board, you know, pun intended. And then also how do you make sure that all of your stakeholders are on board, even if you have very big strategic initiatives that they may or may not want to ultimately do which in a very large corporation is pretty common. You might have the rest of your C-suite, executive level folks who may not be on board with what you ultimately want to do as CEO or where you want to go next or what you want to address and what you want to accomplish. And there's often times where certain initiatives mean that uh, there's, it's, it's probably seen as lost, maybe some of the other key players, but you kind of have to reposition it as a, actually a win. Um, and that's kind of like the inner politicking that happens. And I think that's what this section talks about a lot. But we also see this even in the small SaaS company, even in the small bootstrap company with a really small team of like five or six people. We see the same exact thing. It just looks a little bit different. Uh, but engaging for impact really means that we are aware of what the problem ultimately is or what the challenges are. And we make sure that we get the right people on board to address those challenges, those problems, those issues. It could be that, or it could also just be just driving towards whatever that growth goal is. And when I think about the CEOs that we work with who do this extremely well, uh, they do a really good job of communicating to the team. Again, your team could be five people. It could even be three people, but they do a really exceptional job of communicating. Here's the goal. Here are the milestones to get to the goal. So here's how we know we're doing well. And here are the three things or the five things that we are going to like this, like these are the things that we are going to focus on that we're going to reiterate and tell ourselves and our dreams at sleep at night and wake up in the morning and like think about like this is really the mindset that we're going to have or it's going to be the strategy that we're going to follow. And they do an exceptional job of making sure that they remind people of that time and time again. And also that it's clear that uh, that it is really clear to the rest of the team how everything is going and how things are performing and also what they're on the hook for. And this engaging for impact piece, I think it it is as much strategy as it is uh, making sure that you're communicating these ideas and these ideals to other people. Uh, one of the CEOs that I work with, um, you know, typically you see a, a very common cadence in an organization, especially a SaaS company or a startup, where the CEO has, you know, the monthly performance review. This could be a live meeting or pre-recorded. I do pre-recorded, uh, but there are some, you know, of course you want to have the energy and the vibe of like everyone actually working together on something. Um, even if you have a team full of part-time contractors or freelancers even, I actually think even if you're in that scenario, which Demami even is actually in that scenario, um, it still makes sense to engage in that way and to just let people know, you know, here's where we're going, here's what your part is in this, and here's, you know, what we're depending on you for to contribute in order for us to get to this goal.
Uh, but yes, the CEO does this uh, every month. They also have quarterly planning and review sec- sessions with the, um, I'm going to put this in finger quotes, but you know, the exec team. And then, um, and then of course they have the annual retreat and the annual planning and strategy session. Um, they don't have a board to report to, at least to my knowledge, but um, they are still operating in that in that way. And I think that the CEO ultimately has an easier time of having the, the tough conversations while also uh, evangelizing certain things that need to happen in the organization. And it just it makes it a little bit easier, I think, for the CEO to address challenges and issues while still remaining innovative uh, and inspiring. So it's not just all, you know, here's all the issues and all the problems, but also it actually makes people excited to want to actually solve them, which I think is important. Uh, so that's engaging for impact. One last thing before I totally move on for engaging for impact was I think what's important about this number two section is they don't shy away from conflict. CEOs who do a really good job of engaging for impact aren't afraid of the issues. And also it seems like they dive headfast into them, especially if it's a very mission critical issue that's going to block their growth in some kind of way um, or create a very big headache later down the road. There is a CEO, there's another CEO that I was thinking of, and um, I've had the pleasure of working with this particular CEO a few different times, actually, since I've been running Demand Maven. And they follow the, uh, it's called, I think it's called um, EOS from Traction, the book Traction. Let's see if I have this on my shelf. Uh, Yes, Traction by Gina Wickman. They follow that operating system. And one of the things that Traction recommends is that you actually literally track the issues, almost like um, imagine creating like a database in Notion or something to that effect. And you track all of the issues. And as a team, collectively, you prioritize which ones you're going to address. There, I mean, this is separate from product issues or like product issue tracking or bug tracking. This is more like company challenges, company issues. Um, maybe you have a hiring challenge, like you need to find a particular type of role and you're having um, issues attracting the top talent. Maybe there's something broken when it comes to, um, yeah, gosh, I'm, I'm struggling, like think even thinking of examples that aren't product related, but I was thinking like, oh, the website could be, well, that's technically like a technical problem. Uh, it, it could be maybe a culture challenge. Maybe you need to sit down and think about, you know, what the vision and mission or whatever is. Like it could be whatever the issue is. Um, I know for us, like if I were to give some examples for the demand side, addressing retainers was an issue. We needed to reinvent them to make them infinitely better than what they were before. And like that was an example of an issue that we were tracking at the time. So that's kind of what I mean when I say that. Uh, but this particular CEO did an excellent job of tracking all of the non-product or non-like bug or issue issues in the organization. And I thought he he did such a great job of this. And weekly, monthly, quarterly, they uh, they would go through and they would decide, okay, what are the issues that are blocking us in some kind of way from building you know, a stronger, bigger, better company? And it was really cool to see them track those things. Um, so, oh, sometimes an issue would be like, we don't have a really clear understanding of the ICP or positioning and messaging seems to be misaligned. So those are some better examples. Uh, but yeah, that was something that I thought was incredibly helpful and good and would just 100% recommend it. Um, but also check out Traction by Gina Wickman. All right, we are in the home stretch, adapting proactively. 
So adapting proactively is really all about adjusting to a rapidly changing environment. And this was one of the ones where this is number three that we're on. This is one of the ones where I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, like this, I think is still applicable in some ways to SaaS. But for the most part, it kind of sounded like it was more big company CEO vibes <laughs> where uh, you've got, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of employees and um, changing is literally difficult because you have so many people and or stakeholders involved and pivoting and shifting direction is is pretty tough. Now, for my startup and SaaS companies that are on the smaller side, less than 50 employees even, I would actually say it's not that this isn't relevant or applicable as much as it is. It's going to be applicable in a much smaller way. I think the thing, like the biggest takeaway for this section is really going to be as you're making this founder to CEO transition, are you filling your mind, brain, energy, space, whatever it is, are you filling it with information that is going to help you uh, predict the future as best as you possibly can while also sensing current change? I'll give you a couple of examples. When it comes to adapting proactively, one of the ways that I like to explain this or think about this is how am I filling the time that I have with thought-provoking information or insights that I can use to act in a, in a different or better way. So for example, I've been keeping my eye very, very closely because it impacts my market and impacts my clients and it's going to impact my business at some point. But I've been keeping a very close eye on the impending recession, economic downturn, whatever it is that you want to call it. I, but I've even, I've to, to dig even deeper, I've been looking even more closely at how VC funds are shifting and how things are changing, and where the money is going, what times of companies, and how is it going to ultimately impact the rest of the market. The last time we had a recession, an economic downturn, we didn't really see as much of an impact in the SaaS world. But this time around, it seems like it is much more prolific and prevalent. So it's a little bit harder for me to ignore. But those are the kinds of things that I'm taking a look at. I am also, however, looking at trends in the bootstrap space because we take on clients from both bootstrapped and funded. And as we look at trends in the bootstrap space, I see companies on the one hand hunkering down, but I also see them investing a little bit more aggressively in growth because they're taking advantage of everyone else moving slow, which I think is interesting. So that's one example. But then there's also keeping a really close tab on customers. So if you are a CEO or you're a founder that's transitioning into CEO, if you are in that space, this is actually the perfect time for you to be thinking about customer research. You've heard me speak about customer research if you've ever heard me speak at all. I think I pretty much mention it in every single talk I've ever given and every single podcast I've ever uh, appeared on. Um, less so much, I think, on this exact podcast. But I'm going to say it again because this is the kind of information that a CEO is going to want to know. The best way to keep tabs on where the market is going is to conduct objective, structured research. And what I mean by that is it's not just hopping on the call, hopping on the phone, you know, with a customer and you know, peppering them with random questions as much as you are asking the same standardized questions. You only really adjust the questions as you need to over time but you are asking them as objectively as possible. And it's also very possible that it might not need to be you doing the interviewing, but it needs to be someone else. Uh, because, you know, a CEO is going to get one type of response. 
But we have seen time and time again that when someone else interviews, uh, they get a very different perspective. There was a CEO of a $12 million company, a $12 million ARR is, is what they were at. Uh, and the CEO that we worked with listened to every single interview that we did, which was really cool because it basically was like, okay, yeah, like this client is really engaged and we love an engaged client. It's awesome. But they actually took the time to listen to all 12 or 13 interviews that we did. And it was really cool because they came back and they were like, you know, this is information that, it, you know, it's familiar. It makes sense to me. I've heard a lot of this before. But what they also wasn't, ex- what they weren't expecting was they weren't expecting as much of the same, uh, just just raw, honest feedback. It was a lot different than what they had been hearing in their customer success and support calls. So that was a really, that was a really cool moment. But also it validated and confirmed for the CEO, okay, yes, we're heading in the right direction. Uh, I can trust that we're heading in the right direction because we got this incredible feedback. And it just, it just further enabled that CEO to see, okay, here's, here's what the customers are saying. In about six months to 12 months, we'll probably do this again. And we're going to see if it's different. I also have an example where we, uh, there's another, there's a, another client founder, uh, CEO, who we've worked with several times since I've been starting and running Demand Maven. And uh, the first time we worked together, the customer base was very much focused in one particular area or jobs to be done. And then a year goes by and we work together again and we do more research and we find that the jobs to be done has actually shifted and the customer base has shifted. So much so that it actually, I wouldn't say it's unrecognizable, but it's just a completely different mindset now. And the CEO was shocked, but also not shocked because it kind of made sense based off of what they were hearing in sales calls and then also customer success calls. But again, this is the kind of researcher information that you would need to adapt proactively. So uh, all that to say, adapting proactively, it's one of those things where it might feel like it's not applicable because at least in this particular scenario, but I think that the way that CEOs adapt proactively, especially in bootstrapped or um, small SaaS scenarios is by staying very plugged into your market, to your industry, and also to your customers. I think that that's how you make sure that you adapt proactively because for the most part, it's pretty easy for, well, I say it's relatively easy for a SaaS company to pivot a lot harder for a very large corporation. So just keep that in mind. All right, and the last... See, the last section that we've got is delivering reliably. This one is a pretty straightforward one. It's basically just high-performing CEOs ultimately are able to deliver results, which sounds very like, okay, duh. But what I think is interesting is it's not just about hitting home runs every single time. It's also about learning the mistakes from all the strikeouts. Delivering reliably, when you garner enough wins and losses, you're able to more clearly identify what makes a win a win. And how did we get to that win? And also, how do we avoid loss, if at all possible? Of course, it's going to happen. But how do we mitigate it as much as we possibly can? I think it's really interesting because uh, I, I think a lot of us have this concept or idea that a CEO is someone who is perfect and like is always winning in some kind of way. But we actually know for a fact, historically speaking, that that's not true. 
And of course, there's going to be mistakes, bad bets, etc. But a great CEO learns from those things. A not so great CEO repeats it. And it comes back and it haunts them like every time. <laughs> easier, way easier said than done. But um, delivering effective, reliable results, I think is a huge part of the story. This is kind of where it gets a little, uh, how, would I, how should I say, shadowy, where delivering reliably does ultimately mean you aren't just, uh, you aren't just, you know, thinking about what the goals are and, you know, kind of haphazardly, you know, meeting them, especially if that wasn't the intention. It's setting goals, meeting and possibly even exceeding them. And if that doesn't happen over and over again, then there's not that like there's something uh, wrong as much as this is kind of where you have to look at how you are making decisions, how you are engaging for impact, and then also how you're adapting proactively. But then there's also circumstances upon which you really can't control. So delivering reliably is one of those like tricky ones where it's like, okay, but is it me or is it everything else or is it both? And this is where I would say number four is the toughest to figure out because yes, high performing CEOs perform. That sounds so like obvious, <laughs> but unpacking and figuring out, okay, but where, where does performance fall apart? If, if uh, you are a CEO who has not been performing where does it all fall apart? And where can we take responsibility and hold ourselves accountable while also giving ourselves grace and compassion for not being perfect? Um, this is actually one of the ones that I think throughout my entire career, even when I was in marketing, number four was something I always had a little bit of insecurity about where uh, I, it hasn't always been you know, sunshine and roses and butterflies. Like it's, there have certainly been moments where it was like, oops, all spiders, oops, bats, you know, bears, scary, whatever. Um, I was trying to think of the foil <laughs> of sunshine, rainbows and butterflies. And that's what my mind went to. So, <laughs> but it hasn't been, you know, all sunshine and roses for me. It, it, there have absolutely been challenges. There have absolutely been massive failures in my, in my particular case and places and things that I've, I've uh, done that have resulted in absolutely nothing. And I think what's interesting is when it comes to delivering reliably, I think a lot of us feel like it has to be perfect, that it has to be a home run every single time. But what I'm learning is, no, actually the learning is the win. The learning is the opportunity and challenges and conflict are actually opportunities for growth and for, for us to learn something as opposed to uh, something to feel guilty or shame about. But that is a mindset that I've been cultivating for years, and it's not going to be an overnight one. And even, even now, delivering reliably is one of those areas where I think it can easily trip us up. And it can make us feel like because we're not performing that we are a failure, but that's actually not true at all. Uh, if there are scenarios where there hasn't been a great positive performance, whether in a leadership role or what have you, it's actually just another opportunity for us to learn. And as long as we're cool with learning, then as far as I'm concerned, that's considered a win to me. And in the meantime, you can learn how to deliver more reliably later. So all that to say, what makes a high performing CEO? They are able to decide with speed and conviction. They are able to engage for impact. 
adapt proactively, and then finally, they're able to deliver reliably. Now, a couple of books for you to read. In terms of decision-making, How to Decide by Annie Duke, one of the best books I think I've ever read so far about decision-making. So if deciding quickly and effectively is something that you really struggle with, I highly recommend you read the book How to Decide by Annie Duke. It is absolutely incredible. It will, uh, for me at least, change your life and wasn't expecting surprise therapy in that particular book, but it, it has a little bit of a surprise therapy in it. So just be prepared for reevaluating not just how you decide at work, but also how you decide personally and in general. It's pretty, pretty amazing. The other book I mentioned in today's podcast is Traction by Gina Wickman. I'm also going to link to the HBR article uh, in the show notes. So that way you can have a read if you would like. All right. Thanks again for listening. In the meantime, I would love for you to just like pause and think about out of everything that I discussed, what are some of the things that you feel like you could improve or work on? Even if you're not a CEO or a founder, let's say you're a marketer, or let's say you are a freelancer, or let's say you're none of those things and you're just chilling. Like, you know, this podcast for whatever reason was like, I want to listen to this. Out of all of that, how could you be a better CEO of your life? What are some of the areas that you could improve upon? Is it engaging the right tools, people, resources? Is it deciding? Uh, Is it being more organized and planned and effective? Is it uh, adapting to change? What what are the different areas that come up for you? What are some of the things that uh, triggered something for you? All right. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.